Hi, I'm Dr. Greg Goins from the Reimagined Schools podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, do you like awesome rings? Do you need a ring to replace one that you lost ages ago? Or do you need a new wedding band because yours is no longer fixable? Well, (laughs) I have this cool sponsor, Boone Titanium Rings. They can be found at boonrings.com. They make their rings from titanium, and you can get the rings carved, engraved, inlaid, laser cut. There's even special collections like the Hunter Series or the Gamer Rings or the Black Zirconium. Very cool. They have models that have meteorite, wood, or other inlays. Check out BoonRings.com. And at checkout, use the code for my podcast. It's capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, and the number 12. T-L-L-K-12. And you will get 10% off the total. And you will help this podcast out. Thanks so much. I love my ring. And I know you will love yours. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Dr. Sarah Holman. She is a clinical product marketing director at Riverside Insights. Join us as we talk about Riverside Insights and how it can help teachers address student needs. And we also focus on uh, helping all children learn. What a great conversation. So much to learn today. Thanks for listening. Oh, by the way, it'd be so cool if uh, you took time to share the podcast with your friend, your colleague, your family members, your neighbor, anybody. That would be so cool. All I got to do is uh, send them the link and say, here, you should listen to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12. Could you do that for me? Thanks so much. You are awesome. Enjoy the show. It's the education podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12, ah, ah, with Dotsty Maletto. Dr. Sarah Holman, a former special education coordinator, diagnostician, and bilingual teacher who is now clinical product marketing director at Riverside Insights, can discuss why it's crucial for teachers to create classrooms that are safe places for students to try, experiment, and get meaningful feedback that allows them to make sense of what's going on around them. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And uh, Dr. Holman, thanks for joining me today. Say hi to everyone. Well, thank you. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited for this discussion today. Well, I'm glad you're here. And uh, Sarah, before we talk about your work, could you share what you like best about teaching and working with kids? Sure. Um, So I had a sort of unconventional journey into the education field. Um, I grew up in a home that put a real value on volunteerism and service. Um, I never really considered being a teacher, but when I graduated from college, I decided to join the Peace Corps. So as a biology major in college, the, the assignment that sort of aligned with that course of study and that skill set was called a rural health extensionist. So basically what I did is I worked closely with, with the local health post in a, the small town where I, where I served um, on public health sort of initiatives. And so a big part of that was working in the schools. And so that's really where the educational bug kind of bit. So when I returned to the States, I got my degree in bilingual education and started my teaching journey. I taught um, pre-K, kindergarten, and first grade bilingual education for many years, um, and then returned to school for my master's um, 
and my educational diagnostician certification. So to answer your question, I think most educators um, love to see the growth of their students achieve over the course of a school year. Um, teaching those early childhood and early education students, I felt that to be especially true. I just re- it was just really such a pleasure to see not only the academic growth that they achieved over the course of the year, but sort of the physical and emotional growth as well. And I just really enjoyed playing a part in that um, for what was, you know, their first school experience for a, for a lot of kiddos and making that experience positive and joyful. And then when I transitioned to uh, working as an educational diagnostician, it was really just such an honor to help students and families understand sort of the why behind the, their learning challenges and really work together to create a plan to move them forward and, and, ha- and how to address, um, address some of those um, skill deficits and leverage their strengths at the same time to sort of move them forward academically. Very cool. And, and you know, one of the, things I got to get you to talk about is that, so, you know, in your bio, I mentioned that, you know, one time you just talked about it, that you're a bilingual teacher. If you had a chance to go back to when you first started teaching all the stuff you've learned since then, I mean, what advice would you give you? I mean, to say, uh, Hey, come here, do this. (laughs) Not that. How how long do you have? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, You know, I think like, most teachers, I was, there's early years, you're really focused on making sure that all the students are sort of hitting whatever standards or that the state or the district is, is setting. And I was really working very hard to make sure that they were reading at a certain level or demonstrating whatever requisite social emotional skills that, that they were required to show. And I really took it sort of as a personal failing when students didn't meet a certain learning target. Um, what I came to realize and what I wish I sort of had realized earlier and taken into consideration was that my students were accessing and engaging in the curriculum in two languages. So they were learning new skills and information and a new language at the same time. And so looking back in those early years, I wish I had been a better advocate in communicating that to colleagues, to parents, and to the students themselves. It's just what an amazing thing that they were doing and and really doing beautifully. That's cool because, you know, it's just it's something I like to a- ask colleagues because it's kind of like uh, it's one of those things that I think about from time to time. You know, if only I'd known this then, you know, and it's uh, – but uh, I still had fun then. But it would <laughs> – Absolutely. <laughs> there's some, some things that might have been a little bit better. So um, – and I have some colleagues rolling their eyes going, a little bit? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 uh, exactly. So let's take a minute to talk about what you as a clinical product marketing director at Riverside Insight does. I mean, um, you know, what do you spend most of your time doing? I mean, can you talk about that? Sure. So at Riverside, we're really um, focused on providing tools that will give educators and evaluators really impactful insights into students' learning um, and behavior that will allow educators and evaluators to program educationally for those students in a way that will, you know, continue their 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 progression um, and skill acquisition. And so what I focus mostly on as a product marketing director is 
um, telling the story of how our tools um, can help educators and evaluators in that mission. And I'm sort of driven by the mantra that, you know, although we are a publisher of educational assessments, tests don't identify students, people identify students. So it's my role to help um, educators and evaluators discover just what these tools can reveal about their students and utilize and implement those insights to further student outcomes. Very cool. So, so if you had your druthers out of all the stuff you do, what would you like to spend most of your time on? I really, what I love to do is connect with customers. I mean, those were my colleagues for, you know, decades. And so I love hearing the stories of what they do every day, the students that they work with, um, you know, obviously how our tools help them in, in that endeavor. But, you know, I, I'm in Texas, I practiced in Texas. And so this position has really given me opportunity to, to engage with practitioners from across the country um, in different geographical areas. Um, so that's been really, really super um exciting for me to be able to engage with practitioners from another region that may do things differently. And I mean, I'm a constant learner, so I love, I love to see um, and hear about other people's experiences. That's cool. So, uh, you know, it, and you just said something that, that made me uh, think of something. So, you know, Texas alone, you know, a long time ago, I went to school in New Mexico and I grew up in Florida. And so I would have to go from Florida across this vast expanse <laughs> <laughs> to get to New Mexico and uh, back again. And, you know, one of the things that's very telling about the state is when you drive it, is that when you go from west, from east to west and west to east, is that... Uh, there's some differences, <laughs> just not only in the landscape, but uh, in the makeup of the cities and such. I would think that that would fit perfectly in just the fact of trying to address the differences of the communities in the, your state alone. Right. Yeah. And it, it really kind of reinforces the idea that in order to be a successful educational assessment company or any company that that endeavors to serve educators is to really be aware of what's happening locally on the ground in that particular district or school. And so these sort of blanket one size fits all solutions are not, they're not going to fly um, in a way that's convincing or compelling to educators. It's really important to get to know what those particular educators or administrators or evaluators um, are dealing with on a day day basis so that we can, you know, help them um, create and solutions for those most pressing needs. Very cool. So, you know, let's go back to um, Riverside. Let's stay with Riverside Insights for just a minute. What, did, what are some of the common challenges? I mean, what's typically what you're dealing with or, or at least starting? What's a starting point that a lot of... Uh, um, your clients might uh, ask you to help them with? So I think anybody working in education today, you know, is is aware of some of the very pretty significant challenges that um, teachers, administrators, um, you know, assessment personnel are facing. We've, we're dealing 
with staffing shortages. We're dealing with the uh, lingering implications from learning disruptions because of the pandemic. Um, and so I think taking those things into consideration, we're really um, focused on, again, um, providing those educators and, and school-based practitioners with, you know, the, the tools that will provide them insights that are going to be meaningful for the students. So at the bottom line, what we're trying to do is provide information and insights and understanding of students with the final objective of improving their outcomes. Very cool. So, uh, so let's get out of the, the talking about all the corporation stuff and things like that. And let's, let's get into some stuff about instruction and so forth. And, w- and one of the things that we talked about in the intro that I read was, uh, you know, you're trying to um, help teachers create places that are safe, you know, for students to try experiment and get meaningful feedback. Can you just, ex- you know, go with that for just a little bit and explain what you were talking about there? Why is that important? Sure. So, you know, there's lots of um, evidence-based strategies that have been identified that are sort of essential instructional components for English learners. But I think it's important to sort of take a, a broader view um, and look at some more general concepts about, you know, designing your your classroom as a space that is conducive to the process of language learning. So it's it's important to understand that when kiddos are acquiring a second language, you know, that is a very vulnerable state, right? I don't, if you've learned a second language, it is often very intimidating to try and put yourself out there and practice that um, in a way that, you know, feels, you you're, that you feel safe, right? And so it's important that teachers design an environment, a learning environment where it's okay for kids to, make mistakes. And the, the reason that that's important is, you know, Stephen Krashen is a, is a, is a researcher in this, in this area. And he talks about what's called the effective barrier, the effective filter. And if kids are feeling embarrassed or fearful, that effective, you know, filter pretty much inhibits that second language acquisition process. So designing your space um, to to do to lower that effective filter will facilitate the acquisition of that second language. Um, and so I think it's just sort of we need to consider some of the larger sort of systemic needs because whatever instructional practice we choose is going to be limited in its effectiveness if we don't create um, an environment that is conducive to um, language learning. Uh, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, Funny, I, I went to schools to fix things, all right, as a principal. And um, one of my s- schools had, uh, um, you know, a lot of kids in it that were, some of them didn't really know their own country's language. <laughs> um, they had their own version of speaking it. And, uh, and, and so you're trying to teach them English as well as having to s- teach them a little bit about their own language so they could translate it into, into that. And so as a result, they would come up with their kind of their own things. And I, to, to get to know kids, um, one of the things I would do is play soccer and, uh, with them. And, uh, by the way, and 
you know, it's one of those things where uh, they were very nice because uh, sometimes they pass <laughs> me the ball and things like this. So, you know, <laughs> we had the principal with us, you know, and uh, some of them would go, oh, and they'd make it possible for me to score, which I thought was cool. <laughs> but, uh, right. um, but it, uh, you know, what was really neat, though, is when they're speaking Spanish to each other and they're from different areas or different parts <laughs> of a Spanish-speaking world. And uh, um, I'll never forget this thing that happened. Uh, these two guys are talking and they're, pass the ball and then and I'm running with him down the field and then all of a sudden the one stops and he goes he looks at him he goes would you speak English he goes I I don't even know what you're talking about (laughs) (laughs) and it was just it it was just funny because you know in that world that soccer field became safe for him to admit that uh, I I don't know what you're saying and uh, we're faking it here but a lot of times you know if they think they're gonna be made fun of or they're gonna be uh, someone's gonna you know, uh, the adult might uh, not appreciate the fact that they're not really getting it. They may not let on. I mean, what do you think about that, that they don't get it? Yeah, I think, again, you are exactly right, that that commonality of soccer enabled them to create a relationship with each other and build trust. And trust is so important when you're learning a second language because I don't trust you. I'm certainly not going to put myself out there and, and, and try to say something in a language that I'm not familiar with. So, you know, creating those common experiences and building those relationships are, are, it's, it's a vital component of any classroom, but it's particularly, I think, important for those students that are learning, are learning English as a second language. That's cool. I appreciate you talking about that. You know, uh, so let's let's get into instruction. I mean, what are some of the most important best practices to incorporate in the classroom? I mean, what, what do you like to, to focus on? What's something that you like to suggest? So I think um, a couple of things that I think are important to take into consideration. First is that, you know, language acquisition isn't sort of an all or nothing state. You're not language proficient, English language proficient or not. It exists and sort of evolves along a continuum, which can be relative to circumstances. So I taught pre-K, kindergarten, and first grade bilingual education, um, but don't put me in front of a Spanish language literature class at the secondary or, you know, post-secondary level, right? So the idea of language proficiency, I think, is a lot more fluid than some people may um, think of it as. Um, there's sort of this, you know, widely conceptualized idea of proficiency where you've got your basic interpersonal, this is based on work from Jim Cummings, your basic interpersonal communication skills, and then your cognitive academic language proficiency. And those are two different skill sets. And I think sometimes, Um, We have to take remember as educators that, you know, kids can be able to converse with peers on the playground very conversationally, even with adults, um, but not yet have the language to be successful academically. And so it's really important to understand the unique individual language profiles of students. So this is going to involve collecting data from lots of different sources, um, asking the, the, the students, the parents, formal assessment, informal assessment, because you're going to have to really understand that linguistic profile of the student to, in order to be able to select those instructional um, strategies that are going to be most impactful and effective for, for individual students. 
So Sarah, is there a, a specific strategy that you really kind of like that you would recommend that someone look at, into doing a little bit more? I really like the picture word induction model um, by Emily Calhoun. Um, because it provides opportunities to build language strengths sort of cross-curricular um, in a multiple uh, content areas. What it is, but it's basically the idea that you're taking a, a, a picture that can be um, consistent with whatever um, content area that you are um, think, teaching. So for social studies, it may be a picture of a historical figure, um, for science, it could be a picture of a particular ecosystem. Um, and then you're working as a class to um, create um, labels, um, vocabulary descriptions of that picture. And then you are then leveraging um, those words to create um, using sentence stems or whatever specific instructional scaffolds your the level of students require um, to then create a written um, piece or a written um, product. So it's basically leveraging that background knowledge of the students, building on that and, and augmenting their vocabulary in order to then produce a written content. Awesome. So, uh, so let's talk about this because sometimes the reality of uh, what a teacher is working with is they don't have just one language. <laughs> they have right. a couple languages in a classroom. I mean, do you have suggestions on how to incorporate students of several different native languages within one classroom? Yeah, so I think that it's important for students to see themselves represented in the activities and the curricular materials that you're using. So however you can, and, you know, obviously it's going to be more difficult with their languages that may be less familiar or, you know, there may be, um, you know, fewer resources available, but ways that you can sort of bring in those students' native language to what you're doing every day to sort of demonstrate that, that you view and value what they're bringing to the classroom every day. And so I think the, the, the use of, 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 of families as a resource and also the use of peers as a resource can be effect particularly effective in those classrooms where you're trying to, when you have a very rich um, language experience um, within the students. Very cool. I, you know, it's one of the things I got to, I got to ask you here is that, uh, and just as a note, I mean, I, you know, when I was in high school, uh, um, I, I was at a school that offered many different languages and, and the language I chose to take was German. And uh, the teacher just did an awesome job because she had to have first and second years in the same classroom. And then when you got to third year, you were in the same classroom with fourth years. And uh, it was, uh, what was really cool was, and as a note, I eventually it was in college, I took German as well. And uh, one class, the uh, um, good thing is they only made us do it one time. Yeah, that professor was not as good <laughs> as that high school teacher in uh, being able to deal with multiple levels because I can only I can only think that not only if you have a couple different languages, um, then when you have different levels of their capabilities and stuff like that, that, that could be uh, um, 
not only frustrating, but uh, something that they go, hey, tag, I need some help here. <laughs> um, right, right. Absolutely. And it takes a very skilled educator, I think, to basically uh, implement what we what we call sort of comprehensible input, right? And making the content accessible, to, you know, sort of irregardless of the the language skills of the individual student. So this idea of, of comprehensible input, multimodal learning, visuals, experiential, kinesthetic, all of those things, what you need to do um, may vary um, depending on the, the 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 needs of the student. But basically, you know, the dis- instructional design is is that comprehensible input. Gotcha. That's you know, it's um, just a, a big part of you know working with kids anyway is uh, you know <laughs> what they bring to the classroom and uh, what they don't, <laughs> and uh, exactly, um, and uh, trying to help them overcome the. You know, whatever their needs are, trying to address those. So very cool. So, um, you know, one of the things that can help is you if you can engage the the uh, parents of the English learners. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? You know, do you have some strategies in which you would encourage the teacher to reach out to the parents? I mean, or um, can you just talk about uh, engaging parents to help the learners? Yeah, I think at least from my own experience, there was often sort of a misconception by parents. And it was driven by, you know, a clear desire for their student to achieve and be successful in school that there needs to sort of be a focus on learning English sort of to the exclusion of the home language. So what I think is really important is for educators to continue to encourage the use of that native language in the home as a bridge to learning language, learning that learning English, right? So the stronger they are in that native language, the more it will facilitate the acquisition of English. And so communicating that to parents, um, I think is a, is a really important um, component of that school home um, relationship so that they, they, they can sort of understand that the, the, best way or one of the best ways they can support the success of their student is to continue the development of that home language. And so, you know, you can communicate to parents the, the, the clear benefits of biliteracy, bilingualism, um, and use that as an opportunity to really sort of encourage that um, language development. Um, I think it's important to um, recognize that parents may want to engage with the teacher in different ways. I mean, we're very accustomed as, as educators through email correspondence or text correspondence or sort of that digital correspondence, but recognizing that some parents um, may want to connect on a more personal level. So providing multiple avenues for that parent-teacher communication um, is, is, I think, another way that you can sort of facilitate that relationship. Um, there are, you know, obviously there are language barriers that may occur. Things like uh, Class Dojo or the Remind app, which I know um, from my own kiddos is a really common way to communicate, have the capability for translation um, that can make that communication 
easier, but it's creating, again, that welcoming environment in the school where parents feel like it is a place where they, they, their presence is valued and encouraged um, because I, I'm not sure that that's always, that's always what's communicated to parents. That's, that's a real good point there too, by the way, that's uh, something having, you know, I, I, just, just a note, when I started teaching, my first teaching job was in a school that was extremely, I mean, the number of uh, languages that were spoken in that school was out of this world. And I think it was at least 30. All right. And, um, and so in my U.S. history class, um, you know, I'm a brand new teacher. This is, uh, I have all these different uh, backgrounds that are in there. And uh, I was doing something that I um, learned from my, uh, um, in my student teaching from the, the master teacher that I learned from, who was awesome at what he did. I had a great experience. So for those people who, <laughs> who shudder when I say words like this, I, I had a, the opposite. I had a great experience and, uh, and I had all these skills and ready to do it. And I get in there and get into this class and we got some stuff going and all this. And I was requiring a notebook to be turned in, all right, to make sure they were keeping track of what they were doing. And, uh, uh one of my students kept his notes in, uh, Vietnamese and, uh, <laughs> when you collect a notebook up and you go, yeah, it looks good. All right. <laughs> that's and it, it, That taught me a huge lesson as well as, uh, you know, one of the other things that's fascinating because, you know, I'm, I'm teaching U.S. history. I'm talking and going on. And there's just so many things in history that lend itself to, uh, to funny little puns. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's funny what this taught me because, uh, so I had a uh, Chinese student sitting next to a Filipino student who um, he knew he was very conversant in the languages and uh, um, he was also a funny guy <laughs> and he, he, he was looking at her because she, I got used to this. She would, she used a dictionary and she would flip and she was constantly <laughs> flipping the pages. And, um, and this one day I said something and it, it was like that. It was like a, a pun on the words and it wasn't making sense to her in the dictionary, I guess. And he looked, mm-hmm. I looked over there and he's going, it's a joke. and she looked at him and then she went oh and she closed her dictionary and you know all of that taught me a lot about uh, I had to change my uh, my approach to things like this because I did have so many students who were in that in that uh, classroom setting that were learning English right along with ones who were very advanced in understanding English even though they were from other countries and were recent uh, immigrants to this to the U.S. so anyway it's fascinating what you're talking about because having Skills like this. That's, that's why, you know, when I said at the beginning, you know, is there some advice you'd give yourself? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I would have liked them to say that to me before I got into my first day of class. <laughs> that, right, you know, right. So, uh, but anyway, good stuff. I, you know, one of the th- things that I heard you mention was, uh, you know, using peers to help, you know, aid in the process. Um, can you talk about what you mean? What, what are you talking about with that? Sure. So I think that, you know, it can take a variety of different forms and we always need to take into consideration that individual, you know, sort of learning styles of students, but oftentimes because of the nature of the relationship between peers, it presents an opportunity where students sort of automatically feel more comfortable with Um, you know, trying out the language or expressing themselves without that sort of fear of embarrassment that may occur um, when they're trying to interact with with an adult. 
or that sort of, you know, um, I don't want to mess up in front of my teacher. Um, not all kids, some kids, you know, don't want to, that, that fear of, you know, uh, making a mistake is going to be that it was going to be present with a peer or not. But a lot of times peers can serve as a really good, um, way to have those kids sort of engage with the language in a way that they might not be comfortable with, with an adult. They serve as, um, language models. And I think it provides an opportunity to both, you know, further the, the, the English skills of the English learner, but also provides the, the student that is learning English an opportunity to demonstrate what they know of their language and sort of broaden the perspective of, of maybe the monolingual English student and open, open their worldview a little bit to something that they've maybe never been exposed to before. So I think it's a two-way street um, in terms of the benefits of those peer interactions because it provides, you know, English learners are, are sort of presented all day long with a reminder of sort of what they can't do, what they can't access, how they're not able to yet communicate as fluently in the English language as some of their peers. And so providing them opportunity to share the gift of their their language, the gift of their culture, um, demonstrate sort of things that they're really, really good at Um through those peer interactions, I think is, is a really important component to building those relationships and building that sense of trust within the learning environment. That's so awesome. I mean, in all, in all of what you're talking about builds upon that, uh, what we talked about at the beginning, which is that safety of the environment in, w- in which to, to learn. And exactly. So, exactly. So exactly. cool. I mean, Sarah, we're getting ready to close, but uh, before we do that, could you let everyone know where they could connect and learn more? Sure. So um, you're going to find a lot of really great resources um, on our website, which is RiversideInsights.com. Um, you're welcome to connect directly with me. It's Sarah.Holman at RiversideInsights.com. And um, yeah, we, we love to hear from educators, evaluators, people while working with kids every day um, about your experiences, what you need and, and how we can partner with you to help, um, you know, within your, your endeavors. Very cool. So, uh, um, I will put that information in the show notes and it's easily accessible, uh, by uh, anybody, um, listening right now on their, whether it's on their mobile or whether it's on their laptop or whatever they're using. So good stuff. And, uh, um, before we go, I got a couple last questions I'd like to ask you. And the first one goes like this, how do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? Yeah, I think, you know, it's important to be reminded and remind yourself of, of your why, you know, why you're doing what you're doing. And, and, you know, I am no longer in public education, but honestly, my why remains the same. I want to impact students. I want to provide them with the opportunities to reach their potential. And so when things are, are tough and you know you're stressed and I think it's always important to come back to why you're doing what you're doing and for me at the end of the day it's it's the students and making an impact for them that's awesome 
Love it. Uh, last question. Uh, do you have a, a teacher in your past, uh, Sarah, who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given a chance to say thank you? Yeah, I have a lot, you know, looking back, I have a lot of teachers that made, you know, sort of a significant impact. But the one that comes to mind, first of all, was my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Clift. And he, I had gone to private school for several years before. And so he was sort of my first public school teacher that I really connected with. And he, he was so engaging and he connected with this on a personal level. So during recess, we played kick, he played kickball with us and he just provided us opportunities to um, learn in very creative ways and was very encouraging to sort of for us to sort of think outside the box and discover things sort of on, on our own and was very, he just really encouraged and instilled in me sort of a love of learning. Um, so yeah, he, he was a really tall man. He reminded me, I don't know if you've read Raul Dahl, the BFG, but every time I think about Mr. Clift, he was, I mean, he must have, I was in fifth grade. So he seemed like a giant to me, but that he just had that very kind of warm nature. Um, so it was a really, a really positive experience. That is so awesome. Thank you for sharing and, and talking with me today. Uh, Sarah enjoyed our talk. Thanks so much for talking with us about Riverside Insights and thoughts about working with all learners. I mean, you have awesome focus and I wish you the best in all you do. Well, thank you for having me. It was great to talk to you. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. The opinions expressed on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.